Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. From the Batcave. Hey, we've had closets. We've had we've had a cell. Hey, I'm, we've I'm had everything. The, Jake, yeah. I'm out of the closet, just for the yeah, record. That's true. Mike's, Mike's in the attic now. Yeah, I, that's my bedroom is in the attic. So I'm up, I ran away from my kids. And we're live. <laughs> it, it happened surprisingly quickly that time. It's Value After Hours, uh, joined by Mike Mitchell, Bill Brewster, Jake Taylor. What's happening, fellas? Life is good. Back in New York. Mike, tell us a little bit about the lumber market, please. Yeah. So I, I could go on and on about the lumber market. It's, it's, today's news. <laughs> it's is, only an uh, hour what's show. Happened? What's happened? <laughs> yeah, I know. Okay. So you really got to go back to the 60s. It's a tariff issue. No, I'm kidding. We're not going to the 60s. Yeah, no, the, the, uh, the lumber market, there's, there's rumors out there that there's some stabilization, which would just be, for me, if, if, we've, if we found some price stability in the 700s, I'm in, I'm, you, this will be the last show I do that's not on a NetJets. So <laughs> I called Mike this morning to say hello, and he's like, oh, you're calling me to tell me that the weather is really, really hot. And as a consequence, some of the mills have shut down. I really appreciate you looking out. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That's the, like, uh, oh my. The, you've seen some, some price stability today because the, uh, the BC, BC temperatures are north of 100, which makes it really hard to produce. So uh, there's some scrambling going on. It's actually, that topic, we don't have to talk about lumber, but that, that, that was my observation from the weekend. I don't know how much... Uh, I was in Colorado on the weekend. I don't know how much traveling you guys have done, but I, I mean, it, it's really in, in the town that I go to Salida, it's, a, it's busier by 50% than I've ever seen it. I've been going there for 10 years. It, it, it's like out of control. I mean, there's it, so many people around. It's, it kind of blew my mind, um, which was the topic I was more interested in. But if you're a, a mill or a supplier or a home builder, I, I think the question you're asking yourself right now is everybody's on vacation what happens in September, right? So school comes back. Do does the job market come back? Does the you know, does housing pick up again? What does that do? And so now imagine you're a supplier and you're trying to decide if, if you buy into that. And if the mill shut down, you know, then it's like you, you want to get your supply locked up now, right? In case that comes back and you don't know when you're going to get the wood. So, so I appreciate you calling me to talk about that this morning, Bill. That was very yeah, helpful. Was My wife's top of mind for me. It. Top of mind for me for sure. <laughs> Dude, I'll tell you what, I, I have been around, uh, I've been raging in Chicago, so I have a pretty good sample size of what this city is like. The service is just atrocious because yeah. nobody's working. And like my boy who has run a restaurant now for like close to 20 years, shout out to Carson's, um, like he's making salads. He can't get people to make salads. Like, yeah. it, they're, like he's the salad line. He's yeah. working like a dog. He's seven days a week. Um, I go in to see him. I can't even see him. And he's like, dude, I don't know what to tell you. Like we got to make the food and no one is here. Right. Well, in, in Colorado, the, the service was good. I mean, they were meeting the demand, but what I noticed was everywhere had a help wanted sign everywhere, like everywhere. 
and the the wages that they were offering for mundane jobs blew me away. So that the one the first one I saw when I got to town is to go to Safeway, and they were looking for an overnight stalker, uh, like a grocery you know shelf stalker, which means no education at all required. Like just put this here, put this here. Uh, it was twenty dollars an hour. Uh, the the butcher they're looking for a butcher twenty one dollars an hour. Uh, the pizza place, uh, which had excellent service, shout out to Moonlight Pizza in Salida. You guys are amazing. Pizza place um, in Salida had great service, but they had help wanted offering, no joke, only time I've ever seen this posted in a restaurant, 401k and healthcare benefits to their employees for a pizza place. One unit pizza place in Salida were offering that. <laughs> kind of blew me away. But I think in Colorado, what's happening is the people uh, who have the jobs are just, they're working seven days a week. They're working all the shifts. So they're doing, and I saw the same people when I went to the same places. I think people are just working their, uh, sorry, working their nuts off, including the ladies. I mean, metaphorically, obviously, but they're just, asses. They're they can just work working their ass. asses off. Yeah, Thank you. We all have asses. Too. They're working. Yeah. We all do. We all do. I used to, uh, I should do more squats. <laughs> they're just working very hard. And you got to think that like for them, they're probably cleaning up, right? I mean, you know, 20, you know, you're making 20 bucks an hour and you take your shifts from 40 to 60 hours. Like it's, it's a boon. So it'll be interesting to me to see when I left, I was thinking one, there are jobs everywhere and there are, they're relatively high paying jobs with like little barrier. You don't, you don't need an education to get these jobs. And I also was sort of wondering how many people are staring at that job going, you know what, I'm just going to keep hanging out with my kids. I mean, even the, the national parks, so I normally see two, three tents, one or two campers. There's a hundred people. I mean, like it was insane. I, I it's, it was crazy. So I, I kind of wonder how many people are like, look, I haven't been on vacation 18 months. I'm out. My kids are out of school. They're going back to school in the fall. Like, let's just go vacation, take a break. And then in September, when kids go back to school, how many of those jobs will get filled? It'll be interesting to see. My, my guess is probably a lot. I mean, 20 bucks an hour, if you don't have any money, that's the easiest job in the world to take. So do you, do you think sense. it's a, do you think it's a product of uh, the last 18 months being just incredibly stressful with COVID and quarantine? And then in addition to that, if you can work from home, which many of us can, you've just probably had longer hours than you've ever had before yeah. because getting rid of the commute just got rid of the, the time you spent in the car. You just worked during that time. Yeah. I mean, for me, this was the first time I had been out since uh, prior to prior to the COVID lockdowns. And so I, I was just happy to be away. I mean, I, I just, you know, be away from my kids for a little bit and I, I love them. They're wonderful children, but being <laughs> away from my, my wife is watching the best kids on the planet, but being away from them was exciting and seeing my friends. I hadn't seen them in two years. And, and so I, I imagine there's this, like that, I, I think that pent up demand conversation is very real. So the question for me is, you know, what happens when that pent up demand kind of blows through the system, which it will, I mean, you know, for families anyway, it's going to, when the school, when school starts again, I mean, it's very like fixed, it can't go on forever. Your kids are going to have to go to school. And a lot of the schools I know in, in some places they haven't opened, but in uh, Texas, they're going to be fully open. Florida for Bill, they're going to be fully open. Never closed. Even, yeah. I, That's right. So, yeah. I'm a little so, worried about this Delta variant, though. That mm. that could throw yeah, I've a heard real some, kink I've heard some, some concerning. Things. I've heard some concerning things in the physician circles. On Seems Delta. like you don't get that sick. So, but now f- Google's going to demonetize us for disinformation campaigns. Just a matter Sorry. of time. Sorry, yeah, I've heard. I'll, I'll I'll take my knowledge of Delta variant offline, so I don't get, get uh, backlash from YouTube. That's a good idea. You think that um, the the money that's going to be spent during this period 
combined with the fact that I still see shortages everywhere I go. I was trying to buy some barefoot shoes and uh, oh, just about every single color and every single size is sold out. I was kind what of- What were you trying to buy? You know, those barefoot shoes, they're like very thin. Uh, you can like, the, the, the idea is that it's better for your feet to, rather than wearing all the you're gonna, padding. You're going to rock the ones that got like toes and stuff on them? No, nah, not, the, not the toe ones. These ones are pretty good looking shoes. And so I contacted them. I said, when, when, when are they going to be back in stock? And they said, October. Yeah. I was like, October. It's like this bullshit. This thing will be over in five minutes. Like, I'm not going to want to buy them in about six minutes. So I, you need to fulfill that now. That just reminded me of Top Gun when they asked for that's, backup. That's what I was saying. So, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well done. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think this is, uh, I, I've said it before. I think this is what McMurtry was tweeting about last March about supply chains getting all screwed up. I think now we're actually living it. I don't, I don't know that he would have thought this necessarily right when he sent that, but it, this is a problem with just in time when just in time just gets stopped. Uh, getting back to in time is really, really difficult, I think. That's right. Especially when you have labor issues, right? When you, I mean, a lot of this is like, I got to, I got to hire a guy to go unload the port and then load it onto a truck and then to drive the truck. I mean, you do need, you need people, you know, if people are not to mention, to work, dude, there are countries that are still locked down. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so you need like, those, those little fingers to make Toby's ballerina slippers. <laughs> <laughs> but they look great. <laughs> they do. Yeah, they do. I, I, I have this, this deep seated belief and it's like, it, you know, I'm, I'm the ignorance is bliss guy. So I, you know, when somebody at, poses this, like supply chains, you know, are an issue and that's going to cause, you know, all kinds of disruptions. I just sort of sit back and say, capitalism fixes this capitalism solves right. this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's been solving it for hundreds of years. It's going to keep true. solving it. I, but I had, I had Bernard Horn of Polaris on my podcast it's the one that's out now. He, I spoke to him. Uh, he, had, he had this interesting point where he said that we've never had this circumstance in the world before where every single manufacturer just stopped what they were doing, yeah. paid all of their payables, collected all of their receivables, and then just sat there for three months. And then three months later, they said, okay, now we need to get back to work. And everybody pressed the button at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it's created this kind of funny thing in the system where there is a lot of demand for some things like lumber and there's not a lot of supply of other things. Like there's lots of things, lots of odd stuff just isn't available. I don't know how that all plays out, but you know, if anything is required in the series and it's not there, it just means it's not there available at the end. I guess that's an argument for the transitory inflation, but what, what then happens beyond that is sort of the more interesting question. I think. I wouldn't be surprised to see us, bounce off the other way too, like overproduction of a lot of things that, you know, we're going to have glut of things that'll, I mean, it's just, it masks. is, well, masks, yeah. Hand was, sanitizer. Sure. Um, I mean, all of those, it's just a common, anytime like a system is trying to find equilibrium, it's going to probably swing back and forth across, you know, where, where it should be. But I don't know. It's, it'll Which be is the function of capitalism, right? To, to kind of like, to overproduce and underproduce and try and find that. And it does it more efficiently than any kind of top-down system, but there's still there's still waste in there and there's still overshooting and undershooting. And we don't really know how long this one will take to correct. 
Yeah, you're not wrong. It's like in it's it's like in a lot of things that average the the concept of average is just that it's a concept. We don't live at average, right? We live at extremes. Right. It's markets live that way. You know, yeah. capitalism is that way. Supply chains are that way. We either have not enough or too much, and we sort of normalize it out. But we never live at normal, right? It's always too much or too little. I mean, the yeah, thing the- that's wild is the ten year is selling off. Like, I don't know. I don't know. The bond market that- doesn't seem to think that there's a whole lot. There's a finger on that scale, though, right? Not the ten-year. That's what, what you don't think they're playing in the ten-year? Are they not? I don't. I mean, I don't. I no. I I don't know enough to have an intelligent conversation about this. But I think that the Fed messes around on the short end of the curve, and the ten-year is such a deep market that I don't. I don't know that they can really like repress that. Well, it- I think we're just. I, I don't know why we would go to like. I guess the thing that's hard for me to understand is why we would go from like a slow growth, no growth world to all of a sudden this hyperinflation growthy type world. I, I, I could see a scenario where like you have a step change up in price coming out of this because of the stimulus. But then I just think we go right back to like pfft, growth. Like, I don't see why, I guess, unless we then say like, well, this is going to be like perpetual government spending which is very possible um but uh i also think that there's some sort of signals that the appetite's not there for that but you know maybe who knows i don't know just on equities well a part of the tenure issue I mean, is that, more money will flow to disney yeah no i mean part of the issue is when you put a lot of money out there and and you keep the short end really low i mean everything pegs off the short end right and when you throw money into the system and you keep the short end really low everybody starts chasing yields so you get a lot of dollars you know running yeah, after everything and that's, that's what fair. keeps the rates down and it in my the only time you really see and i'm about to i'm you're you're literally witnessing me get over my skis so as i keep talking <laughs> you're seeing my head go right over the skis but when you see that that flip where those where rates start to get funky so if you remember march of 2020 you would see the t- the 10-year just like bombed like it just bombed and everybody wanted us dollars there's times of real stress and so that's why i look around and, and it really i say real stress i mean stress in the system but it was a lot of lack of confidence so i kind of look around and i'm like well there are a lot of things that could make people on you know not confident but right now there are none of those things so what are they doing you know they're like you're trying to balance, you're stretching on the curve a little bit, you're buying a little bit more risk and you just have a lot of dollars to put to work. And there, you know, and there's, by the way, there's more dollars being created every day. So it's anyway, it's, I, I don't know, again, it, that's where it kind of gets back to prior conversation we've had about, well, I'm bullish. And it's like, why? It's because I can't find a reason to be bearish. It's not because I'm so excited. It's just because I, I can't find a reason to be bearish. This is just so much money and so much, you know, everybody wants to be involved. Everybody wants to put capital to work and everybody's very confident. You add that together and it's like, well, asset prices are probably going higher. In some ways, that's the underlying performance of the economy, but you know that can be divorced from what asset prices do through that. And I, the thing that I always, I keep on saying it, and I, 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 you guys all predicted this before we went on, but you know, if if I look at the Ford returns now, they're like 05 percent, and uh, that assumes the mean reversion over a decade. If you don't get the mean reversion, then you get the underlying growth in in earnings and that assumes we're at the same valuation in a decade from now which you know who knows that's enti- that's as possible as going back to to the mean but if we're at the same level then the ex- the ford returns here are like five percent a year mm. which is pretty modest yeah it's like Historic, 10, historically 10% percent below yeah. the i think individual investor surveys i saw recently it was like, like 17 wasn't it <laughs> 17 
17.5% was the number that I saw. That's what everybody's expecting forward from here. Well, you can get that. that just loaning your Bitcoin, can't you? For <laughs> no, no risk. That one's going to be tough. Yeah. Then no no risk. No risk on the Bitcoin. I never really understood. My mind always thinks if you if somebody's telling me that I can buy something and loan it out at 17%, my mind just immediately says, okay, well, then the market's kind of telling you this currency is going to go down 17% over that term. Like, I just don't believe in these free lunches. No, oh, they're everywhere. Free lunches are everywhere, Bill. You're just not looking hard enough. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> if it's, if it's, didn't, I mean, so- didn't Corey mess around with that stuff? He got into doing that, didn't he? Like, as a, as a project for pirates. Yeah, yeah we gotta we gotta check in with him and see how that's going for him. <laughs> if somebody's if somebody's promising you in this environment with a ten year at one five or four one six, I don't know where it is today, but if somebody's promising you ten to twelve percent, I assure you, I haven't read any document, I assure you you're taking a lot of risk. That I, I absolutely am certain of. What the risk is, I don't know, but I know you're taking a lot of risk if you're getting that kind of return in this environment. Well, I, I see they could, would, sorry, ARC funds ahead. are like ARC funds are like twenty, twenty five percent, aren't they? For what? That's the expected return from here. Oh. Well, I'm at like 23, yes. but yeah, sure. Not enough. I need more. Yeah, it's gonna, it seems tough to get double digits from here. That that even I will say. Yeah, I'm, I'm backing off of my personal target of 10% annual returns. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to be able to hit that going forward. That's a big number. Just well, depends on how far you want to look out, I think. I mean, this too shall pass. It may take a while to get to a reasonable return level again. What, what, how, do you, how do you set your your personal return requirements? What are you What are you basing that on? For me, yeah, or anybody, but you, you you raised it, so I'm interested in you first. Oh yeah, so I I just. It, it, it's not more complicated. I just picked a number uh, almost out of thin air. I mean, it, there wasn't any science to it. I just thought, you know, as I, as I looked at the world and what I've done in the past, and when I retired in the uh, end of 2018, early 2019, I just said, well, what's a very reasonable, a stretch target. That's very, but also very reasonable. Like if you're, if you're, if you're into the game, you like security selection, what is a number at which you wouldn't underwrite below? And so for me, right. the number I wouldn't underwrite below is 10%. So if you if you do the math, and I'm not charging myself any fees. So, and by the way, the 10%, I have to, if I'm underwriting 210, I've got to feel like extreme confidence in that 10, right? Because I don't even think you get a ton of margin safety at 10. When you start talking like 20% IRRs, and now I'm like, okay, so if it really doesn't go well, I'll probably still, you know, even if the arrow lands well south of the bullseye, I'll still hit a pretty good number. So that, that's how I got there. As I said, well, you know, I'm not underwriting anything under 10. If it's under 10, I'm just going to hold cash. Um, so that that's how I got to 10. And I, I've, I've always felt very strongly that um, I, I don't want to compare my own returns to a benchmark and they're like, like the S&P, for example. So I, as I watched other funds do that and, and LPs of the funds more importantly do that, what I noticed was the uh, portfolio managers and the analysts, everybody was complicit in this. They start managing to the benchmark and that, that is not how I personally operate, not how I wanted to operate. So I, the benchmark to me is irrelevant. I, I really, don't, if you want the benchmark, just go buy the benchmark, right? It's not. When, when you say they manage to the benchmark, do you mean they, they, the portfolio starts looking like the benchmark or do you mean that when the, when the market gets very expensive, they start, the, the hurdle rate goes way down, which no, you know, all things being equal, you probably want it the other way around. Yeah. It's, it's more of the former is that the, the, 
the the portfolio construction is discussed in context of the S&P 500 and the issue that I I'm not saying that's wrong and in many cases especially if you're selling yourself as like look don't give your money to the S&P 500 give it to me because I'm going to give you lower beta you know or I'm going to give you less market risk and I'll give you the same you know whatever you can come up with better sharp ratio I'm not saying that's bad I'm just saying for me if you look at the top components of the S&P 500 I have no view on them. And that's 25% of the index, 25% or some huge number. I, I don't know if it's that today or more or a little bit less, but it's the vast majority of your money is wrapped up in five securities that I have no view on. So you're asking me to compare the next investment opportunity I get to those five companies when I don't really know those companies. And, and by the way, you know, n- not a knock on them. I'm sure they're phenomenal. I don't want to spend the time to learn those companies. It's just not something I want to do with my time. So that that to me, when we we'd get into meetings, you know, with with portfolio managers, co-portfolio managers, they'd say, well, you know, the index makeup now is, I don't know, 40, 10% tech and 5% energy and 3% mining. And I'm like, guys, to be honest, like I don't give a flying fuck what the index is, but sorry, what the in, what the index is made up of. Like, who cares? Like, what idea do you have? Like, walk me through a stock pitch that you like and why you think it's gonna work and why you think we're gonna make good money on a risk-adjusted basis. So in my mind, it just got very cloudy. Like I'm a stock picker. I'm a business analyst. I'm not an index analyst. That's not what I do. So I, I, it, I think if I really compared like on a day-to-day basis, I looked at the S and P and I said, well, you know, boy, the S and P is up 30 and I'm up 10. That's a disaster. Well, actually for my family being up 10 is pretty good. So, you know, and, and, and if I don't outperform the S and P over time, like the conversation we were having last week, if I'm not matching the S and P over five years, it's like, what am I? I'll just go to the movies. Seriously, I'd rather play video games. You know, I, I like picking stocks, but if I suck at it, it's not a problem. I'll just give my money to the S and P, pay like ten basis points or whatever the ETF chart is. And anyway, I'm, I'm, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm getting over skis here pretty quick. I, 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 I think that's what most people should do candidly. And if I underperform for long enough, that's exactly what I will do. Uh, but I, I, the comparison to the S and P makes no sense to me. I'm, I'm a. Like what's a good outcome? And if I double my money every seven years, that's a pretty good outcome. Like that's not a terrible. If that happens, I'm going to I'm going to die on a net jets that I will not have left for five years. I'll just be in the air like that. What's that movie Contact where the guy just lives in the air? That'll that'll be me. I'll just be like traveling between Tobias and Jake and Bill. I'll just be in this constant loop of I'll come get in that jet with coffee. You. <laughs> it's not a bad outcome, but that's that's how I got to ten. Now, you raised some really good points with that. I think um, it's been interesting to watch the evolution of Berkshire and Buffett's hurdle rate over time. And, you know, when they were smaller and it was earlier and and maybe you could say uh, better opportunity set just due to even just size constraints, you know, they they compounded it, I don't know, 23% ish book value for a long stretch. And then as you've watched it go down over time, now now he's willing to take an eight to ten percent kind of regulatory return from, you know, huge deployments of capital into Mid America or Berkshire Energy and uh, the railroad. Uh, but then also the other thing that's interesting, um, I've been thinking a lot lately. I think I'm going to write about it for the next quarterly letter about how actually you know there's this saying that 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 he says that he's a better investor because he's a businessman and he's a better businessman because he's an investor. But I think you could also say that uh, the insurance side of things has actually made him a much better investor and that the the links between insurance assessment and, and investing are actually quite strong. Yeah. And so uh, to tie this back together, he says that 
you know, they're looking to aim for a 90% underwriting, basically, for the, especially for like the super cap part of the business where it, it can be very difficult to sort of match the premium today versus a really long tail of liability over time. So they're aiming for 90%, which is implied sort of a 10% hurdle. Um, so it like it all kind of fits together in his mind, I think, in a similar way where he has sort of this 10 percent hurdle now for any dollar that's that's in their deployment, whether it's, uh, you know, putting it into solar panels in Nevada or whether it's, uh, you know, insurance against, uh, you know, an, an earthquake in L.A. Like it all kind of fits together into that same sort of 10 percent hurdle for him now. 10% feels uh, like about right. But I think that he's, he's always said he would buy uh, a business at about 10 times, like roughly 10 times owner earnings, right? That's always been the, a private business. And then I, I think he's getting the return by assuming that they're better businesses than what he's paying for them at 10 times. They're worth a little bit more than that or likely to grow a little bit faster than that. In fairness, if you're getting if you're putting the checks to work that he's putting to work, and you get much more than ten, you stole it from some. I mean, you really, and that's not his mo. He he yeah, does yeah. not because he wants quite people good, to stick then. around. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he wants people to stick around. He wants to have minority owners, and he, you know, the, the the people who sell him his business, he likes it when they keep a stake and things. You really don't underwriting ten and getting growth on top of that is is that's a pretty good. That's not a bad outcome for Berkshire shareholders. And I, my guess is, you know, the, the bigger he gets, the smaller that number is going to get over time. Certainly has been the case historically. That's a difficult. Uh, that's a difficult task in this market, though. I would have thought. I, I, I've just been playing around with a little bit. Like I, I found, you've got to creep it down to about eight percent to kind of get the the answers that you want in this market. <laughs> or lower. Or lower. Yeah, eight percent's a big number. I I had eight percent on those curtaps, and I was like the happy. I was like a like a pig in slop. I was so happy. I was buying those things at par, and even those are six and change now. I mean, they they and they re-rated just like that. I mean, that's that's the market we're in. You know, it's six. I'm like, that's it's good. Yeah, they're they're money good, but that's it's not eight. The discount rate that you apply when you when you're looking at like this, I think about the discount rate as like the 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 time value of money. Like you could be putting to something else. Like even that's like, I thought I thought eight eight percent was getting a little bit extreme, but I guess that in this in this market, like you're not going to find eight percent anywhere else, anywhere. And then to get at a discount to that which is tough in this market again. Yeah, I think you can build in, you could build margin of safety in, in different ways. You can uh, build it into your growth assumption. You can build it into your discount rate, um, or you can build it into the margin of safety of the price that you pay uh, You know, once you make the assessment of what you think it's worth. Now, I, I think... It's probably, I think it's probably better to use a consistent discount rate for every uh, any security that you're looking at and then get your discount on the price after that. Um, that's personally what I, I tend to, that's how my mind works. Um, that way, at least you're comparing apples to apples. Yeah. Uh, whereas if you start to monkey around with like, oh, this seems riskier, so I'm going to use a higher discount rate for this stream of cash flow. I mean, that could be okay, but I think you're starting to introduce more bias then, and maybe you're not comparing apples to oranges as much at that point. I'd rather make it up somewhere else in the price. Has Buffett said the 10-year? Have I imagined that? Was it 10-year plus whatever is appropriate for the risk of the business? Am I imagining that part? No, he's said that no, before. Think, he's used he it that, yeah. uh, a 10-year plus, I mean, equity risk premium for lack of a he would never use that term because it's too academic, but it's effectively what I think he's talking about. Yeah. Do you think that the whatever the, the tenure or whatever the appropriate, whatever the 
the your risk-free rate, whatever you use in your mind as the risk-free rate, 10 year or 30 year or whatever you use. Do you think that uh, do you think that's an accurate reflection of what the actual risk-free rate of return is in this market or the, like the whatever you need to get above inflation, I guess is the question. Yeah. I mean, are you willing to take a one and a half uh, for the 10 year when inflation's at four or whatever right now, right? Do you have a negative, that's transitory. negative real? It's transitory. transitory. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. It, for me on that, you got to, it's a, it's a duration conversation. Like if you're saying one and a half percent for a year, like, I mean, that sucks, but it's not the end of the world. I can re-rate if everything re-rates. Like, but if you're telling me one and a half percent for 10 years, the answer is no, I'd, I'd rather just own cash. I mean, it, that's, that to me seems crazy, but it, for a, if you're taking a swing for a year, like, okay, you know, so if you, if you've got the chance where you can buy it higher, that's fine. But if not, Cause over a year, you're not worried so much about the return or you just want it to be there. And most, the, the bowl is to be mostly com- mostly uh there at the end of the year you're not trying yeah. to make any money you just don't want exactly. it to go away that's right is you're just yeah. not, you're not taking a risk and you're not going to trade down you don't you're not going to have any fucking weird thing happen with the the bond so if you if you need the money you're probably going to be able to yeah. sell it at 99 yeah. cents on the dollar it's not like you got to liquidate it for 60 or something cuz you're caught in the middle of the duration it actually makes you wonder too if that's not the game everybody's playing buying it at one five. Is they're they're just like yeah I, I realize this is a ten year credit but I'm trading it for three months you know and I I'm a, yeah. and so you wonder if, if people hit the exit do they all hit the exit at the same time you know well, what I dude mean? then you lever it right yeah oh yeah and that's how you get your return sweet I mean maybe not the risk free but you do it in a corporate or something where you think that you can get some spread I mean it seems to be how markets work these days. Yeah. I mean, isn't that what kind of people do with their home mortgage where they're like, I'm not going to, I'm going to refinance this within seven years, right? Like the average is, I think, under seven years for a mortgage being refinanced. So it doesn't matter what the rate is that much. doesn't matter if there's some big balloon payment. Like it's just, this is just sort of a a rental of a mortgage. (laughs) Yeah. Well, everybody buys on debt service coverage, right? Nobody's buying like a number anymore. And it's yeah. the same with the government. Like, we're never going to pay down the debt. You just got to make sure you grow the debt slower than you do GDP. And it's just one big levered equity strategy. Christ, Have we been going on that front? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know, man. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I, I think uh, TBD. It'll either work or it won't. But and the, the only thing that can happen is you just... Once. Yeah, that's it. You can only blow it up and then you just figure it out after that. Yeah. Bitcoin solves some of this. <laughs> Probably all of it. Crypto definitely this, sells this, it. It's kind of why I'm sympathetic to the people that like Bitcoin. Like, I get it. Uh, I think I, I have like an Austrian, like there's a part of me that identifies with that that method of thinking and Bitcoin sort of does align with that. I get that. Now, somebody's like, ah, that's it's all hocus pocus. This is garbage. Like, okay, fine. Like, that's your interpretation. You have a little Austrian in you? Yeah. <laughs> I do. Okay. If I'm lucky. Buy your dinner first. <laughs> no. It's more portable than gold anyway. You can get it across a border where it's hard to get gold or cash out of the country. Just don't forget the password. Whatever you do, do not no. forget that password. And don't, don't throw away the, uh, don't throw the little away the key. In, yeah, don't throw away the drive in the trash. And what were those guys that stole like $2 billion of crypto out of South Africa or something here recently? I mean, they just walked across the border with, with that in their heads, right? Yeah, that's why somebody was telling me about a fine watch being a good way to get money across the border. I was like, oh, that makes some sense. Well, where do you have to put it? 
Well, customs don't check your wrist, right? Oh. He died of dysentery. <laughs> yeah. And now, little man, I give the watch Hit to you. This watch. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that makes some That's sense. Funny. Get like an expensive watch and go across the country or so border. The, the other thing I've been noodling on, this has just been in my brain for, so we keep having this conversation about like what, what derails, what derails, or at least I'm having this conversation in my head. And if you guys don't want to hear it, just please stop <laughs> me. But so when Powell spoke, was it last week or two weeks ago when he did his speaking in Congress and I was, I was watching him on YouTube as much as I could take the grandstanding, it just Congress grandstanding just kills me. So I'm like, we're, we're not here to hear you talk about, you know, China. We're, we're, we're here to hear from Chairman Powell. So he's speaking and he's talking about the un you know, unprecedented Fed actions around uh, coronavirus. And it got me thinking the last two times that we've had a very serious, you know, market crash and a very serious ec like economic stability, they were some of the most unprecedented things that have happened economically, right? So the, the housing crisis and all the derivatives and everything just finally blowing up and killing the system. And then after that coronavirus, and in both of those instances, it was so extreme what was happening that the Fed felt the need and government felt the need to come in with money, right? Like come in and buy our way out of it, which is, you know, I, I don't knock them for that. I, I, I would have done the same thing because in both instances, I was, you know, worried. And so I, I would have, you know, taken extreme action. I wonder if we have a normal recession again. That's an open question. We might not ever have one, but I'm pretty sure at some point we probably will. Is the expectation people have in the market that in a normal recession that the Fed's going to step in and start buying MBS and start buying high yield credit. And I'm not sure that's the right expectation to have. I mean, you equity know, ETFs. I want them to buy yeah. some equity yeah, exactly. ETFs. Well, and I, Old Japan. You know, it got me thinking about Galbraith's book and the great crash. There was this belief. I think I brought this up before. There was a belief out there um, in the 20s that you know the banks had stepped in under JP Morgan. Um, you know, 20 years prior when there was a lot of economic instability and, and, you know, you know, that famously Morgan's playing, you know, solitaire while he tells the bankers to work it out in the other room and they do. So everybody thinks, oh, there's, there's a bailout, there's a bailout. And in 29, what, unfortunately what happened is everybody expected there would be one. And then when it, you know, became reality, there was not going to be a bailout. It just was like a complete meltdown. And I sort of wonder if like, is the expectation that that's always going to, I certainly don't have that expectation. I wonder if the average market participant just thinks like, it's not a big deal. Market goes down 30%, credit dries up, like Fed's going to come in and start buying. But remember the Greenspan put, there's always been like a, the, a I mean, not, not always, but there's yeah. been a, for a very long period of time as the Fed's got increasingly interventionist, it's become, there's an, I think that there's a widespread expectation that the Fed will intervene mm. on every single wobble. Like if we're down 10%, Twitter is full of people saying, you know, Let's do it. Let's get out there. 10% nothing, you know? And then you have things like Bitcoin. That's what starts things like Bitcoin. People say, well, it's all right. a scam, right? And so then we're just going to create our own currency. Congratulations. We just rediscovered moral hazard. <laughs> well, I just wonder if that's my, my thinking is that, you know, I get the moral hazard. I, I'm just wondering, like, are they going to do it every time? Like, is it is it smart to bet they're going to do it every time? Because what if we have, again, I say a normal recession where we contract 2 or 3% on GDP and like... So as I look in the world right now, I don't see it. I mean, all I see are job openings, right? At very high, uh, you know, income levels. That that in a lot of money everywhere. That that that's the opposite of what you see in a recession, right? In a recession, you see very few job openings, and you know, the wages stink, and nobody has any money, and nobody wants to put it to work. Right now, it's the opposite of that. I just wonder when that does eventually happen. I mean, how how many? See, I was born in 1979. How many recessions have I lived through? I lived through the 80s, uh, the early 90s. Um, and of course, 2000s. Yeah. Yeah. Late night, 2000. Well, yeah, yeah. 2000. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then the recession going into September 11th caused, you know, some, there's instability anyway, and then that caused more and then financial crisis. And then now COVID and they do happen. So that, that, that was just, I was kind of noodling on it. It was like, does everybody expect that? And if that doesn't happen, what does that mean? Anyway, somebody corrected me. It's not, it's not a, you know, the recession, the definition of recession is like two quarters of negative growth or something like that. It's like, it's very modest kind of, you know, you would expect in a, uh, in an economy that has a lot going on in it, that it's entirely possible that just through normal fluctuations, you could have two quarters of negative growth. And then that, it, does that necessitate a Fed response? That Do we need a Fed response to every single thing that goes on in the market? No, I, th- I mean, I think like we would arguably need a fiscal response, um, but that all depends on what you believe. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it goes back to, do you, do you want to allow prices to send the signals to the economy of what we what we value or we don't value? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> right. Well, I want somebody making those decisions up in well, the high tower. And uh... smarter people than me have pointed out, and somebody there's a guy who pointed out on Twitter that um, when they when the Fed came out and said, "Well, we're we're now our dots have us raising rates by 25 basis points in 18 months," you know, and everybody's like, "Oh my god," you know, it's like guy pointed out, well, the reason you do that. And you do it so small and so far out, it gives you two options in the Fed. One, you get to test the market and see how the market responds, which is absolutely accurate. You haven't done anything. You're just saying you might do something. And then it also gives you room, if you need it later, to you can you, you can actually ease by doing nothing other than walking back your 25 basis points. You know what I'm saying? So you get yourself some room. I, I do buy the argument that the Fed is, is paying very close attention to the market's reactions to what they're saying. I, I think that's absolutely accurate. It's... I. It seems like that's been getting more and more and more. The Fed is like the market, so maybe there is the perma put. You know, maybe that's right. You know, I, I just I was thinking about this. I was like, Does, do people really expect that that's the case? Because it seems like a really stupid way to underwrite. Because the one time it doesn't happen, I mean, you're going to blow up. Like you just. The problem though is it creates this that moral hazard argument, that reflexivity in the market that the participants aren't just sitting here. You know, oh gee, if if we fall over, gee, I hope we get a put. They're like, well, now there's a put that that changes how I behave in this market. Mm. I don't need so much yeah. downside protection. I just left tail's cut off. Let's go. Yeah. Now your risk is not catching the right tail. Right. Yeah. No, that was the that was the risk mid 2020 when when the Fed stepped in with a put and the left tail was cut. You know, the big the bigger thing that you did was uh, that that worked against you was just not catching the right tail. That's exactly right. And, but when like that's what that's what creates the speculative mania, right? That need to be that FOMO, that need to be yeah. fully invested, that need to be in all of the stuff that's going up right this now. This is the Minsky's yeah. argument, right? Like that the stability creates its own eventual chaos, and vice versa. Which just seems to me to be that's just that's the case, isn't it? That's that's exactly what happens. It's hard to look at it and not feel like that. It's a pretty accurate description of how these systems behave. But then you have you have that uh, you have that Fed in there. Like maybe they can just keep on catching it as it every time it rolls over. It is kind of a sad thought to think like you, we could spend our whole lives worrying about this <laughs> that it's that they won't do it, and we bitch about it for until we're old men, uh, and <laughs> and eventually, well, like when we're all gone, then it does finally fall over uh, there won't be anybody in the market has seen a has seen a crash no. yeah as I, for, for the record i am not bitching about it it has made me an enormous amount of money so i am not complaining i am thank you chairman powell i i'm not complaining about the fed stance it it, it was 
I, I was fortunate and flipped at the right time. So it, it, it worked really well. So I'm not complaining. I'm just wondering. What, uh, what was the signal that you got that caused you to flip? This is a very good story. So, um, so I got incredibly bearish. Uh, thank you to Dan McMurtry. I know you're not watching. I wish you were. You are the man. That's not me. necessarily true. Might uh, be watching. McMurtry does watch sometimes. Okay. Well, in, in the off chance that you're watching this one, uh, Dan McMurtry is the reason I got really bearish. My, my, um, when we saw the cruise ships disembark, I think it was in March and it, it clearly was spread. And then it hit Westchester. My wife was like, this is pandemic. It's com community spread. This is now real. And so it, it's not SARS anymore. I mean, this is something totally different. And so my wife gives me that and I, I'm sitting there thinking about it. And then I'm, I'm watching, uh, just reading Twitter and damning Murtry says, well, I think it was South Korea, but it might've been Taiwan. One of those economies completely shut down, like shut down. And so Dan just tweets out, he said, you know, what, what does your economic model say when you put total shutdown, nobody leave your house into it? Like, what is, what does it say? Like, just out of curiosity, and the answer is nobody had a model for that. I mean, for the first time, um, in my investing career, you started looking at scenarios and they weren't, you know, it wasn't maybe your base case, but it was a scenario where revenue was zero, right? So formula one revenue zero, what does that look like? Right. And so how long can you, and that, that's a scenario that was a, sh and the market, I think at that point was down, um, I don't know, one or 2% or maybe three off the highs. And so I started getting really bearish. And, and so I remember as I was actually traveling, I was going to Salida's last time I traveled and I was with a couple of my friends and, and, uh, we were all just having this conversation kind of like we are right now. And so I'm saying like, look, the market's not ready for this. So we need to worse. We're, we're going to sell as much as we can. Everything's not nailed down. And we bought some puts, uh, I bought some market puts for the first Went time on CNBC and cried. Oh, no, that was the don't bottom. go at Ackman over don't that. Go at Ackman. I that was still the think Ackman. We, we can right go at Ackman thing. over. We can go at Ackman over. Said it when lot, he not did that it. one. There's plenty of stuff to go after Ackman for. Not that one. That was good. I, I actually I don't know who you're talking one. about. I was just making a joke. <laughs> so anyway, so I, the guy I was sitting next to, Brian Lombardi, is one of my best friends. He's he said that he, he's one of the perma bears. You know, he's one of those guys who's like it's always going to end. And so he looks at me and he says, Mike, you're the most like optimistic guy I know, which is true. I'm like a perma opt. I'm a perma bull. He's the perma bear. And he said, um, he said at the, the federal reserve, if that happens, the federal reserve is going to come out and they're going to pump so much money into the system. It'll make your eyes bleed. Um, when they announce that first purchase, we're covering every short and we're getting long. And he said, I will not do it. I will give you 50 reasons why we're not going to do it at the time. He's like, you need to slap me in the face punch me in the nuts and tell me to buy stocks. And that's in fact, when he said that, I was like, you're dead, right? Like once Powell comes out and says, we're buying assets and it doesn't even matter what the asset is. It makes no difference. Like whatever the asset is that they're buying, just get long. And that was, that's what we did. And, and, you know, we did okay on the down, but then when he said we're buying, I mean, it, and there was a couple months where it was like looking shaky, but even it didn't matter. I mean, that, that was the time to make a lot of money. I didn't, um, get super, like I didn't put a ton of money to work really until curate until Bill Brewster. So, uh, Dan McMurtry gets the big shout out for calling the bottom, but, but Bill Brewster gets the distinction of making me the most money anybody's made me outside of a job. That was that curate call was the one where I got really big. It was all the because only, of that. The only wrinkle to that, I think well, I saw Tepper do his balls to the wall talk in 2009. And at the time I didn't believe it because I had seen through 2000, 2002, the Fed was firing the cannon all the way down there and it didn't do a thing. And so when he said it in 2009, I was like, well, you know, maybe somebody's going to be right around here eventually. It could be this call. So in 
2020, I feel the same way. Like, I don't think that Fed intervention necessarily means that the markets then just take off again. Yeah, well, the markets follow earnings growth over time. I mean, earnings have grown, and then you've gotten multiple expansion too. So, oh, I don't know. I, uh, I'm one of these people that's skeptical that the Fed is the Wizard of Oz, and uh, I tend to think that people probably pay way too much attention to it. So my bet was my base case last year always was that, that said it did matter a lot in March. I will well, that, grant right. you that. I think there were two big drivers. I mean, there's the Fed, I think was part of it, but it, it, it really the Fed, it's not really about the money. And this is my personal opinion here. And again, over skis. So please understand that somebody will tweet at me and say, you're an idiot. And again, I'll say, I am. That's going to happen anyway. Idiot. Don't worry about it. <laughs> right? It's definitely coming. So, but the, I don't think it's so much about, you know, oh, there's a big buyer for my assets right now. The two things you needed to get really, really bullish, you needed somebody to come in and say, it's fine. That's the number one thing. And then you really needed the, the numbers not to be terrible. So I would have been wrong if the COVID numbers that we were seeing in Italy came back in the United States and they were that bad. Like I, I definitely would have been wrong. I got my base case always that we was that we would be fine because I, I don't... I, it's weird for me when people are like, this is going to be a nuclear meltdown. And I'm like, so play that out. Like if it's a nuclear meltdown... Do you have a bunker? Do you have like shotguns and canned food? Because I promise you, Bitcoin is worthless if it's a nuclear disaster. Like, it's worthless. That doesn't do anything. Gold does nothing for you in a nuclear disaster. You can't eat it. You know, it's heavy. It doesn't like what you want is penicillin. That's what you want. You want gasoline and penicillin. You don't, you don't want gold. So I was always in this camp that like it's, we have to underwrite that it's going to be fine. I just don't know exactly how we get there, but I'm sure at the end, you know, we're going to figure it out. And I got lucky because we did figure, I mean, we all got lucky in my opinion, because we did figure it out, but that you needed those two things. And it wasn't for the fed buying it. The important part was that it's confidence. And that that's my point. That's, that's why house prices go up and why people want a home. That's why they remodel. You know, that's why we buy assets. Like it's, it's all confidence. And if you're animal spirits, that's right. If you're and that, that was the fed coming in and saying, I will not let this blow up. Like that's the, it's the liquidity, right? That's what would have taken it completely when that, when Buffett said two years ago in the 2020 annual meeting, so there's about a week where credit markets froze, you know, and, and my phone was about to ring. And that's what he waits on, right? That's what he waits decades for. He wants the call because he knows when you call him, he gets whatever terms he wants because you are the he's the lender of last resort. He's got the most money and he's not he's gonna be the last one to go bankrupt of all of us. So when Powell came out and said that's not gonna happen, so McDonald's put out paper. So senior debt, this is McDonald's, senior debt. They got it done and it was like a five or 600 basis point spread and for McDonald's, which is insane. They got that done in March. That's, that's what it cost. And two weeks later, they wouldn't have been able to do it. Fed comes out and says, boom, it's no problem. We're going to be buying all this stuff. All of a sudden their spread drops to like, whatever, a hundred basis points or something. And then they go out and what do you see? Everybody goes out and issues debt. And then what does management do? Well, we can survive because now we issued all this debt. And then everybody's like, oh my God, the Fed's standing there. Like now we got to go nuts. And then that's when you see people like, chasing these crazy assets up. It's just, it's confidence. It's the animal spirits. That, that was why I got bullish. Could have been pure luck on my part. Probably was, but that's what, that's what got me bullish last year. I think animal spirits has something to say in the short term, but it's very hard to predict. I think longer term, it's some other, it's some other factor, but in, in maybe at tops and bottoms, it becomes animal spirits. I have no idea where we are at the moment, but I, there are lots of little indicators that I like to look at. Like I like that fear and greed index to tell you that fear and greed index did drop down under 20. And that's, that's a value stock geek idea, by the way. Uh, I thought that was a good one where, you know, that, that 
just because when you when you're in these events like March 2020 or or other sort of bottoms, you you not that you necessarily know it's a bottom. Everything's in free fall, and you're terrified, and that's a good counter signal that you probably should be out there doing some buying but it is also nice to have something that's just a little bit more quantitative that says this really is an extreme moment in the market the only problem with something like that is as far as i can see it only goes back to about 2010 and i really want to see what that looked like from like december 2008 to march 2009 because that was just all extreme free fall through there and i'll bet it was under 20 the entire period so you probably bought Early. Maybe you bought a quarter or two too early, but even then, I think that's okay to buy a quarter or two too early in that I actually think you could have bought a quarter or two too late and you'd have been close enough to the bottom that your returns are pretty good. My my problem with all these is when I've had a couple of bites at that apple and I do the stupidest thing and I'm so consistent at it. I start buying like the, the easy safe stuff, right? That's what I do. And that's like this dumbest thing to do. My, my uh, business partner, Brian Jacoby, yeah, he's buying Carol's, you know, he's like taste, you know, the Burger King franchisee, by the way, this is like a five bagger. I mean, in like six months, I mean, it was crazy. The, the guy's a lot smarter than me. I'm like, Oh, look at these preferred shares down 8%. Like, that's <laughs> like, okay, yeah. good, good job. Good job. Cool. Oh. Yeah, I, I learned that when BP uh, had the had the spill, I went and bought all of the stuff that was like surrounding, you know, all of the, uh, you know, the jack up rigs and the, the the everything that was out servicing it, not BP. And what you should have done, or what I should have done, is gone in and bought BP as as it was sort mm. of the crescendo of the news when it was peak fear. That was the time to go and right to ground zero and buy it. Having said that, the counterfactual might be well the. the uh, the fine was so big it put them out of business and that didn't that didn't happen. Well, but there's an asymmetry. I mean that that's my so I don't so much mind in that scenario where they they're going to go out of business. Like I I mean you 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 that's not an outcome that I would prefer, but if if it's incredibly asymmetric and you say, well, you know, the odds are 50/50, but it's 10 to 1 payout. Yeah. Okay, you know, great. Then you just size it the right way, yeah, right? That's you, just, you know, you that's fine. You don't have to swing with 100% of your capital, swing with 5%, you know. So anyway, I I I think it's the the asymmetry of it, and that's what I, I focusing on the downside is kind of how I grew up. So always thinking about how much can I lose and try to lose nothing because the the only thing you don't want in investing, the the only thing is best I can tell that you really don't want to do is get knocked out of the game. If you get knocked out of the game, it is game over. If you survive, you're going to do very very well. So it, it's all survival. I think the guys who really think about the world. The guys who I appreciate how they think about the world is they always look at it as asymmetry and they're just looking for that asymmetry. You know, losing everything isn't a problem. You know, it's not not a big deal to lose everything on one bet. You, you don't want to lose yeah. everything like everything, but losing everything on one bet is not a big deal. You just have to size the bet right. And if the asymmetry is there, you know, who cares? Yeah, it's a bankroll, uh, Kelly betting kind of yeah, approach to the exactly to the world where you, you're always just putting up some portion of your bankroll rather than the whole bankroll. I, f- I feel like Mr. Brewster is disagreeing with me. He's got this very... Uh, uh, dude, I'm just pissed off at myself because I didn't fucking bet El Dorado Resorts and Restoration Hardware. I was too stupid. I, may- I-, I held myself to the standard of you need like at least 5% of your portfolio and both of those would have made me a lot of money. 5%. Big or small, you know, five no smaller than five percent. Otherwise, yeah, I just didn't want to get it. it. I didn't want to get like cute, and I, I mean, I'm I'm pretty proud of what I did last year, but um, I those are two errors that will probably grind at me for the rest of my life. 
Ah, uh, you can know. You'll make new. You'll make, you'll make bigger ones than that. Don't <laughs> worry. I don't know. El Dorado would have been a 10 X. Is that good? You can make money on 10 X, even if it's only 1% of your portfolio. Mike, Mike doesn't matters. get out of bed for less than 11. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, that's, that sounds weak. Sorry. That's fair. It, I mean, it was scary though. No doubt. I mean, no, the you... only reason that it was there is that it was a casino that had bankruptcy risk and I didn't feel like taking that shot but in retrospect i think i underestimated the amount of policy response and next time if they come out with some sort of bazooka i may take a little total risk off but put a little more risk on some of the scarier stuff i think the thing that investors should if you're if you're a single stock picker if you're not a single stock picker a, a business analyst i think the the plan is very simple right you just invest every month you know every month you just invest in an index right you don't pick a stock but if you're a stock picker and you you fancy yourself at, at really good at you know or at least very thoughtful about underwriting risk i think you have to have a framework going into crisis right so Cohen said in an interview, just Steve Cohen said in an interview, just did he say, well, I, you know, I lean into pain. It's his framework. Pain is where I want to go. So show me the pain. I'm going to lean into the pain. It doesn't bother me. It focuses me. I'm more excited when things are tough. Right. I think in 2020, the key was if you really wanted to, if you fancy yourself an investor and you really want to try to, um, make money in times of stress, right. So you really want to underwrite credits when you're sort of a lender of last resort. You have to have a mental framework because I don't. I'm not convinced. Maybe maybe one or two people in the world are able to emotionally divorce themselves from that kind of pain. I am not one of those people. So for me, it has to be a. I'm waiting for this, and when I see it, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do that, and it it just it's almost like you just got to go on like autopilot. Like I'm I don't do not give me the new you know I, I'm open to new information but do not change my plan this is the plan this is what I'm going to do and it kind of keeps you focused like what are you waiting on and when it happens that you know I see my uncle I love the guy uncle mark I love you I know you're not watching the guy sat on cash from the dot com bursting he sat on $750,000 in cash because he he was convinced that the world was going to explode post the dot com burst okay so when the great financial crisis hit the guy was like, I told y'all, like I knew it. I told you it was coming. Well, yeah, guess what you, you forwent nine years and probably didn't even oh, bet then. Correct. So, yeah. and guess what? 2020 rolls around and COVID happens and then he's still got $750,000 of cash. And, he got, and then COVID hits and he calls me and he's like, this is, this is the end of the world scenario. And I'm like, no, this is when you finally get your shot to it. This is what you've been waiting on. <laughs> And he didn't invest, you know, so he calls me in April of 2021. He's like, I, 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 you take my money, you buy whatever you want to buy. You go take my money. I'm not, I'm not doing this. I clearly don't know what I'm talking about. I'm like, that is in, in my mind, it's totally okay. If that's the game you want to play, but you got to have that framework going in because you'll always talk yourself out of making the decision to buy. So that, there is real, right? The, the fear yeah, that everybody else exactly. has, you're a sentient being. You can look out there and see like the, the I didn't. I didn't experience the dot com other than as a as an employee. But the two thousand seven, two thousand nine. I mean, there was some suggestion that, that was going to bring down the financial system, and it, you know, it's Buffett was out there saying that too. So it wasn't wasn't Not you know some me suggestion. There was a, yeah, there's meanwhile, a real good chance. Meanwhile, if he had even even in two thousand put his money in the uh, queues, you know, he'd be up three and a half x. 
So he's been r- wrong on the end of the world and lost a shit ton of relative wealth. That's yes, a hell of a way to be right. I think that cost $2 million. That's that's what, I mean, at least it might've cost more like four or $5 million. In today's world, now that lumber is through the roof, it costs more. Like your relative wealth is screwed. Who cares about what you have on, like your scorecard tells you. It's your purchasing power is all that matters in life. I'm so happy you brought up lumber. That's a perfect segue. It's like we have a few more hours we can get into that. <laughs> I do have a little uh, veggies. Yeah, JT, go. Oh, we need Jake veggies. Yeah, the uh, and it, it dovetails nicely. So even though we did, did no planning on this. Uh, <laughs> so this is another little segment from that deep survival book that I've been reading. Um, this will be part two. So I don't know if you guys know much about aircraft carriers, but they're, I mean, to call it a boat is almost a misnomer because it's, you imagine taking the Empire State Building and tipping it over on its side and you have 6,000 people who live on it full time and you displace 95,000 tons of water, and this thing can go like 30 miles an hour over the ocean. Uh, exact speed, not, not disclosed, because that's classified information, apparently. Mm. Uh, but, and I then like you, that that's what they'll classify. Right, how fast this thing can go. <laughs> yeah, uh, as if it matters. I know. Just going to lead it a little bit less or more. So, and, and you use steam from a nuclear reactor to basically catapult a jet off of it um, and then you could, you know, come in and land on this same little thing. And this little hook basically on your airplane catches a wire and just stops you, you know, like four G's like that. Um, but so one night in this operation, they're running operations, like they're, you know, the pilots are practicing, they're taking off and landing on the, the carrier. And, uh, there's this pilot who's coming in on approach and he's heading in towards the deck and he lets his descent rate get too low and too slow. And sitting on the deck is this guy who's called the, the landing signal officer. And he has like one of those big phones that looks like an old cell phone. And he's got this thing called a pickle switch in his other hand. And what that is, is cause it looks like a pickle, but he pushed the button on it and it will basically like turn on this, these like red lights flashing on the carrier that says like, do not land. Like you power up, take off. Let's try again. Like don't come in. Well, this guy's coming in, this pilot, and he, uh, you know, they're telling him, hey, you're, you're too low, add power, abort. Like, he turns on the pickle switch, like, and this guy comes in, and, like, he's just frozen. And he's, he, he comes in, and he smashes into the back of the, the aircraft carrier, and he, it shears the plane in half. He goes tumbling across the deck, in, still strapped into his seat. Sparks are flying everywhere. Fortunately, his co-pilot, not as lucky. He's just basically smeared into the back of this aircraft carrier. They talk to the guy after and like, what happened? Like you, we told you, like, we're telling you, pull up. You're too low. You're going too slow. Uh, the lights are flashing. Everything in your plane is going off. And he says, I, I literally, I couldn't hear anything. All I, I just had this overwhelming sense that I had to get this airplane down. And like he had a, all of his senses were, you know, tunnel vision, you know, contraction of all of his senses. And what's happening there is that actually his amygdala, this fear response is limiting the bandwidth of what he can see. Like he literally could not hear the, you know, this, this landing signal officer telling him to pull up to, you know, don't land. And uh, I think that we can get into some of the same problems when we get gripped with fear and, and it's a survival thing, right? Like we, we evolved to survive on the Savannah where uh, your reptilian brain would just say like, okay, run away and like find somewhere to hide, like, or get down off of this, you know, rock or, you know, this lion's chasing you. And it, it 
the fact that we're all here meant that that was a successful strategy, but it doesn't fit our more modern world now where you need that executive function. You need that neocortex to tell you, actually, you, you can't, we, you don't want to just get down on the plane. Like that's going to be very dangerous. You need to accelerate and, and take off. And, um, it, it, we're at a mismatch with our environment from our evolution. And that same thing I think is true in markets where the, if, prices crashing cause a fear in you, you're going to be going back to your reptilian brain. It's going to be taking over your input of what you can see is going to be constricted. Um, that the, the Navy has a saying that, uh, you know, once you get up there and you get afraid, basically your IQ rolls back to that of an ape. And, you know, I mean, these guys are all, they're well-trained, right. And they're, they're well-prepared, but yet, that old part of your brain takes over in a fear situation. And so going back to like what you said, Mike, about having a plan before it happens and, and holding your feet to the fire, like the execution of the plan, even when you can't see very far, you know, more than two feet in front of your face in that fog of war, I think is extra important. And if you're waiting to come up with a plan until you're actually in the firefight, it's too late, right? Like you're not going to make the right decision. Your uncle probably is, was waiting to make a plan in real time he didn't have it set aside ahead of time when he had his, the function of his neocortex to work with. Uh, and he's waiting till his ape brain is the only thing running the show. And by then it's too late. Yeah. Great veggies, JT. Very good veggies. Just try not to crash into the back of the carrier. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, it's worked out worse for the co-pilot. So I know now <laughs> be, be careful who you choose to fly with. I know that feeling that, you know, you're just trying to concentrate. You just you need to shut everybody else out so you can get the thing done, even though everybody else is trying to help you and you would have been better off listening. I definitely know that feeling. Um, folks, that's that's coming up on time. It's uh, I, I only contracted Mike for, uh, for June uh, 2021. Checks in I, the mail, Mike. Standing, uh, Mike has a standing check. invitation to come back on anytime that he wants to. Just so, folks, uh, if you want him back on, send the send the note to Mike because uh, he's always welcome. Well, we're we're taking uh, next week off. I'm going to be in Montana, uh, so I will not I will not be receiving wonderful messages. I, I get no. <laughs> it's the best vacation. There's no Wi-Fi. There's no computers. You have to drive two hours to town to uh, to be able to use a computer to check email. So, and no one can Space. call me. You have to call my. So I'm going to leave my, uh, Bro, my you're hotel have number. A satellite check in lumber. Don't lie. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to give the, there's two you. people. I'm going to give two people the number of where I'm staying. One is uh, Bill Brewster and one is Kyle Sermonera. So if you want to talk to me, you got to talk to one of those two guys. I bet Stinson uh, gets it too. But yes, I was Stinson Dean is definitely going to get it. <laughs> uh, but uh, it, it's been fun, man. And, and you know, it, um, when I'm gone for a week and kind of unplugged, if I can uh, muster up some interesting things to say, I'll definitely come back. I've had a lot of fun. Perfect. I feel like I'm crowding you guys out, but I've had a lot of fun. So. I enjoy it. Great. And so, folks, yeah, we're, we're all off next week. So uh, we're going to celebrate July 4th, and then we'll be back uh, after that uh, as, as three or four. We'll wait to see. Watch <laughs> Class Action Park on HBO. It's fucking crazy. It's a great, great documentary. Until then, take care. Thanks, guys. We'll see you. I guess. Oops. Hang on. I always do this. Always. It always happens. Move with the good. Shake it up, stop when the clock hits 13. Sing.